Going Linux, episode 395, listener feedback. Welcome to the Going Linux podcast. I'm your host, Larry Bushy. And I'm your co-host, Bill. Whether you're new to Linux, upgrading from Windows to Linux, or just thinking about moving to Linux, this podcast will provide you valuable information and advice that will help you in Going Linux. We hope that you'll find this and all of our episodes helpful in learning about Linux and open source applications and using them to get things done. If you want, you can send us feedback at our email address at goinglinks at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 1-904-468-7889. In today's episode, listener feedback. Hi, Bill. Hey, Larry. How are you this week? I I am doing well. We just spent the last hour talking about how we are, and uh, we're not going to subject our listeners no. to that. But it's doing things are going well. Let's just summarize that way. It's been busy, but yes, things yeah. are going well. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> hey, before we get into listener feedback, I have a little bit of news that is probably by the time our listeners listen to this, a little bit old, but some folks may not have heard it. You know that System76 and Entraware, Pinebook, KDE Slimbook, um, all of these are computer manufacturers or computers themselves that are pre-installed with Linux that you can purchase pre-installed. And Dell has been selling a few of their models that have been pre-installed with Linux. But now HP, Lenovo, um, Intel, Acer, and Dell are all officially certified to run with Ubuntu, certified by Canonical to run with Ubuntu, and you can now order all of those brands with Ubuntu pre-installed. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, only certain select models, of course, because they have to go through the uh, certification process with Ubuntu to become certified, but... There are models of HP, Lenovo, Intel, Acer, and Dell that are all certified to run on Ubuntu, and you can order them with Ubuntu. So some major brands, uh, globally recognized brands, are now selling um, uh, Linux-based computers and laptops. So that's, uh, that's some news. Now, a lot of these are high-end uh, computers that are designed for, let's say, developers or high-end business people. And, you know, as I'm thinking about the image of Linux in the global computing market, I'm thinking that rather than Linux is for technical people or Linux is for geeky people or Linux is for the programmer or Linux is best used on servers and best not put it on desktops. I'm thinking a way we might want to market Linux is Linux is take a look at what models are pre-installed with Linux. And those are high-end models that are high-performance computers. So desktop Linux is for high-performance computing. Yeah, uh, and and get it out of the hey, it's for the hobby or hobbyist or the tinkerer or the professional developer, 
and get it into people who want to get the most out of their computers will run Linux. That's one way to think about it. Absolutely. And there is a little, what I can kind of see is a trickle down where, you know, you, you have the HP, Lenovo, the Intel, the Acer's and Dell's. And, you know, um, if you might have one of those uh, older machines that isn't certified, it might, you might find that Linux runs well on them even, uh, even then, because, you know, as they start supporting more and more of their hardware, uh, your older stuff sometimes would uh, be supported. And you're like, oh, oh, well, it didn't run it before. Now it does because uh, HP is, uh, you know, said, well, we're going to support it. And uh, the, the hardware is close enough to make it work. You know, Ubuntu... Uh, is always working on that hardware enablement stack and, you know, trying to backport stuff. So that's, it's all around, you know, everybody might benefit whether they have a new, new machine or an old machine, but it's kind of nice to be able to say, I want a Acer with Linux. That wouldn't have happened a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. And there are definitely some older models of Acers that, uh, you just can't get Linux running in any sort of satisfactory <laughs> way on. Uh, and, you know, HP has been pretty good. Um, you had to make sure that the components were Linux compatible. Uh, and that has gone away to a great degree for HP over the past few years. Lenovo, especially the ThinkPad line, has been very good at being Linux compatible for quite a while. Um, Dell, uh, of course, if you buy any of the models that they sell or have sold or have the same components as those that they sell with uh, Ubuntu pre-installed, you're pretty certain that any variety of Linux is going to run on them, even if it's not a specific model designed for Linux. And now you just have some very specific high-end models that if you've got enough money to buy them or you buy a used one once we get to that point in the marketplace where there are these as used models uh, available for sale i think um, it's going to become much more uh, accepted much more recognizable when you see one of these computers with uh, linux running uh, when you're sitting in a coffee shop or if, if we can ever sit in coffee shops again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not go down that route again. But um, yeah, when you see a computer in the wild uh, running Linux, it'll become a little more familiar than uh, unexpected, Yeah, I think. Yeah, well, yeah, this is definitely a shift from the um, small minority to being much more uh, mainstream. So that's always a good thing. One thing we should cover is that, you know, a lot of this is, is happening is because um, you have Canonical and you have Fedora or Red Hat and, or some of these big uh, technic companies that, you know, have been uh, uh, vocal, support, uh, vocal support for uh, Linux. And so they've started working with some of the big players, whether it be Apple or whether it be Microsoft. And so they're able to, you know, work together on certain things to make, 
a lot of this um, available. I'm not saying that either one of those big companies has uh, or have fully embraced you know everything about open source or it's, or is that, uh, or Linux, but it's nice to see that you know the collaborations are starting to pay off, and we, you know we as Linux users can uh, uh, reap the benefits. And speaking of coffee, my poor little coffee house that I like to go to is still not open. So thanks for reminding me. Mm, yeah, I, I miss having my coffee. Uh, but yeah, a little it's a little mom and pop job, uh, and uh, they uh, they make great coffee. But of course, they're not open right now, and I can't even go and sit and have a uh, a cappuccino. So, gee, thanks, yeah. Larry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. So, no, uh, with, with all yeah, to, to put all that uh, negativity behind us, um, shall we get into our email? Sure. Okay. Our first feedback is from Al, who let us know about problems with our podcast feed. Hi, I love your podcast and download it from your website every two weeks. There's a problem. I am getting 96 kilobits instead of the whole podcast. This has happened on the last few episodes. Please check. You are one of my favorite podcasts. Thank you, Al. Well, Al, um, yeah, we've been having some problems. First of all, I think the size of the podcast file that you were downloading was a result of, I'm not sure what the root cause of it was, whether I did something in the export of the file or whether there was something went wrong with the upload to Internet Archive. Somehow... Some of the files that I uploaded over the past couple of episodes have gotten corrupted. I have gone and replaced those. At the same time, compounding the problem, I made some typos in the RSS feeds, both for the MP3 version and for the AUG version. And some of it has to do with some um, off-brand, if you will, uh, bookmarking, that I've been using, um, placeholders in the podcast itself that are part of the feed. And if that keeps up, I'm just going to drop the whole bookmarks thing. Uh, and yeah, so a number of things happened at the same time. So it's really difficult to find the root cause of the problem, but I've been working with Al and Troy and Paul and several others to try to determine what the problem is. Troy has been particularly helpful, and I think we've got it down to the MP3 feed is working. The AUG feed still has some issues with it, and like I said, I'm working with uh, listener Troy to try to figure out, have I got it fixed yet? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> have I got it fixed yet? Not yet. We're still working on that. Hopefully it's all resolved by the time you receive this episode. Yeah, it's probably because I talk too much. <laughs> that is just corrupting the podcast. I doubt it, but anyway. Anyway, Troy also has had some problems. For some reason, he says, I'm, un I'm unable to play any of your podcasts through Google Podcasts. Is there a problem with your feed right now? And I think we kind of just touched that's on this, that. Yeah, that's the same thing. Uh, interestingly, Google Podcast, I don't know whether, I haven't used it, so I don't know whether it gives you the um, option of using the MP3 or the AUG feed, but it appears that Troy is using the AUG feed. I thought they would have been using the MP3 feed, but hmm. hey, what do I know? Interesting. Interesting. 
Uh, Paul also experienced something similar. He wrote in, hi, Larry and Bill. I've been experiencing several problems with Going Linux Podcast 395 today and wondered if you were aware of them. Yeah, the 395 was the one where we had the corrupted files for some reason. And he, he goes through some of the things he's done. He says he subscribed to the RSS feed on his feed reader, which he says is FeedBro. Never heard of that one. Uh, and repeatedly notified him over 30 times today. Uh, I read and then deleted notifications, but a few minutes later it pops up again. That was a real problem with the RSS feed, which I fixed fairly quickly. Then he says, your RSS file, the OG podcast subscription file, in that RSS file, the XML file that is the feed, he said the date was written as Sunday, 23rd of August. <laughs> so J-A-U-G 2020 with the extra J. Yeah, that was causing some problems. As you can imagine, it was putting the um, podcast as though it were 70 years ago or something like that. And uh, then he said the OG file is incomplete. And so that was the corrupted, one of the corrupted files uh, and he says, I have no problem with the MP3 files. <laughs> He's probably the only one who didn't have a problem with the MP3. Anyway, uh, later he says, thanks, I've refreshed the feed in gpotter and can confirm the notifications have indeed stopped. FYI, I'm using Linux Mint 19.3 Cinnamon, gpotter, and a VLC. Needless to say, this didn't spoil my enjoyment of the show. Keep up the good work, Paul. Okay, so... Uh... Yeah, maybe we should just go to MP3 files. <laughs> yeah, this this was, uh, I think, um, some late night Larry not being attentive enough uh, and watching to make sure things went well in the upload of the files and the creation of the feed and things happened. So more sleep would be helpful. <laughs> more sleep or stop watching the movie while you're <laughs> editing. Well, that, yeah, that could be too. Yeah, so not our saying next, that happened, but it could be. Our next email comes from Joshua, uh, who is having fun with SSH. He says, I've been messing with uh, NFS and Samba off and on for months now, trying to get a very small home network running with a Raspberry Pi, running Raspberry Pi OS connected to an 8-terabyte USB RAID drive. My laptop is Ubuntu Mate. But the other family members use Windows 10, and thanks to COVID, I have had two additional Chromebook for kids going to school. In a mixed environment, NFS isn't working at all on Windows 10 Home Edition. Uh, and learning Samba, I've run into lots of issues mapping users and getting permissions errors assessing uh, files. I'm still reading the book I purchased for Samba. Uh, it's a slow read, getting it, it all to work. Tons of configurations. I've been playing around with SSH and found out that if you install WinFSP and SSHFS-Win from GitHub on a Windows 10 machine, it's super simple to just map a drive from Windows Explorer. All I had to do was create an account for everyone in the family on a Raspberry Pi and then map a drive letter to their home directory using Windows Explorer. 
because they each use their own SSH login ID and password, they can't see each other's files on the RAID drive and have lots of storage. It is also persistent and I'm amazed that it just pops back up each time they log in. Has anyone else had luck setting up a home server this way and am I oversimplifying this? In other words, can I expect some issues down the road? It seems much simpler than NFS and Samba. I had to do some research to get the syntax to work for typing into Windows Explorer included what worked for me below and the article I read to get it to work. And he lists the article that he used to get his network. And he writes, uh, Joshua. Okay, so um, have you had any experience in connecting to remote drives on other computers uh, like Joshua is trying to do? No, I, <laughs> I have not. Yeah, it's it's been a while since I've been doing this kind of thing as well. I understand that if it's a matter of having the data synced between that remote drive and another computer. You can use something like SyncThing, which has received some recent improvements to work even better than it did before. And there are some other tools that run in Linux that allow you to do that kind of thing. Since it's a Windows 10 uh, computer that you're trying to use, it sounds like Samba or NFS, the file sharing protocol, are the things that you would need to use to make those happen. Um, but I haven't had a lot of experience in doing this. So let's turn it over to our minions, our faithful listeners, and ask if anyone has a particular article with uh, some instructions or some guidance on how to make this work better. Uh, or whether Joshua is headed down the right path and is doing everything right and it's just a lot of work, uh, give us a, a, a note on email or a voicemail or however you want to communicate with us and we'll share that on the show and make sure that Joshua sees that as well. But um, uh, neither Bill nor I, Joshua, have the experience necessary to answer your question directly. So let's ask our more experienced listeners to give us those answers. Thanks. All right. James commented on Linux printers. Your last feedback was asking for a printer recommendation. You, you recommended HP printers. I have been avoiding HP printers due to the DRM and other trickery they have been doing with printer cartridges. Hey, I understand that. I agree. That's nasty stuff. I currently am using a Brother all-in-one laser with wireless. The printer portion worked out of the box with no effort on Linux. I installed the drivers from their download page. No hunting around for drivers. Easy to follow directions. The full package installed everything needed, including handling SE Linux configuration that worked with the default scanning packages. That's the SANE package, S-A-N-E even with document feeder support. James, well, that's good to hear that um, uh, other manufacturers of printers work. We recommend HP because they just work. Uh, in my experience, the Brother printers, the ones that work, work well. There are quite a few that they sell that don't work with Linux, so you need to be a little more choosy with them. 
um, you need to double check before you purchase the printer that it actually works with Linux or make sure they have a generous return policy on the printer if you can't make it work and buy a different one if it doesn't work. So we don't generally recommend those kinds of brands that you can't depend on to work out of the box. And I would have to say that there are some HPs out there that don't work out of the box with Linux as well, but there are few and far between compared with some of the other manufacturers. That's not to say that other computer manufacturers never work with Linux. That's not, you know, I'm not saying that. It is that uh, HP I know from personal experience to be very consistent on having Linux support for their printers. So there you go. Wasn't HP the one that uh, was putting those DRM chips on their print cartridges or had something printed that you couldn't refill them or something? Yeah, uh, as I understand it, they've backed off a little bit on that, but okay. they still do it. So when you try to go to you know, Costco or Sam's Club or any of these places that offer refillable ink cartridges or uh, non-brand name ink cartridges, uh, generic ink cartridges, they you, you put them in your HP and it either says, uh, this uh, cartridge is not compatible or this is not an HP genuine Oh, okay. cartridge and sometimes even when you take your hp brand ink cartridge that came with your printer and take it in for a refill and you put it back in something happens where they can detect that it's a refilled cartridge and it also says this is not compatible or some message oh, like that so okay. that you know some of their printers are still doing that oh, okay in my experience, when I'm using HP printers, uh, if it's a kind of printer that gives me that kind of uh, aggravation, I just use, you know, spend a little bit more money and use the HP and cartridges and put up with the fact that, hey, I've got to spend more money for HP. Yeah, someone made a joke that you could buy a new printer uh, cheaper than some of these print cartridges. Hey, it was not a joke. <laughs> I have done that. Um, there have been times when, what brand was it? I forget. It was not Epson. It was one of the lesser known, um, but still brand name brands for printers where, I think it was Lexmark, where uh, I would go to the store to buy ink cartridges and purchasing ink cartridge was more expensive than purchasing a brand new printer to replace the one I have with ink cartridges in it. Uh -huh. And then the printer printer companies got smart and they started providing partially filled ink cartridges with brand new printers. And then it became more expensive, of course, because those cartridges didn't last as long. So I think those are day those days are gone, but it was not a joke back then. It's kind of wasteful. <laughs> okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. But hey, you do what you can to uh, ensure that you retain as much of that hard-earned money as you uh, as you can. Okay. So our next uh, email comes from Frank, who contacted us about FSTAB. I was happy to hear that you refer to dash etc dash fstab as uh, as regards to auto mounting partitions in your most recent listener feedback show. This is an article I found particularly helpful as re as in regards to FSTAB. And he listed the articles listed in the show notes. And he said, just uh, as a bit of trivia, FSTAB 
FSTAB stands for File System Table uh, per Wikipedia and MTAB stands for Mounted File Systems uh, Table. Keep up the good work, Frank. Oh, thanks, Frank. Some trivia. Yeah, and thanks for the article. Okay. Ken mentioned the Vivaldi browser. Hi, Larry and Bill. Thanks for all that you do. I am still enjoying and listening after all these years. Can't remember how many, but you have been here through most of my journey learning Linux. Bill, on the last listener feedback, you mentioned Vivaldi browser, which sounds interesting. Right now, I'm totally immersed in the Chrome world. I have the following collection of devices. Multiple Linux desktops, Linux laptop, Raspberry Pi, Android phones, Android tablet, Chromebook, Chromecast. When I think about changing browsers, I wonder about the compatibility with Google Drive, photos off the phones, and of course the Chrome slash Chromecast. I understand that you can install Vivaldi on the new Chromebooks under the Linux umbrella, but don't understand how this would work, if at all. It would be nice to get out from under Google, but the Androids, Chromebook, Chromecast, and Drive are a concern. Do you have any thoughts about this? If I were just working with Linux devices, changing might not be a problem. Thanks, Ken. So, actually, um, I uh, am still uh, using Vivaldi. I like it a lot. It's a... Uh, a Chrome-based browser, but they have a lot of privacy. I've, I've used it on uh, a Mac. I've used it on several different distributions of of Linux, including Ubuntu Mate, regular Ubuntu, and Manjaro. I've used it on Windows, um, and I don't know about the Android. Uh, I think they have. Uh, some yeah, I know they have some images for Android too. So Vivaldi has um, worked flawlessly. Uh, when I've had to um, log into a, a website that requires Chrome, it has worked flawlessly. Basically, it it, it uh, is just more privacy focused, and a lot of those pop-up ads and stuff, just especially on like on on YouTube, just don't bother you as uh, as they would do on say Firefox or Google Chrome um, uh, I just I find that it, everywhere I want to use it I can find it so you know I would um, download it and, and uh, give it a test run on some of the machines because everything I don't know about the pine book or, or Raspberry Pi but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure on everything else that uh, it's available. So I highly recommend it. Uh, I've, like I said, I've been using it for, what, about two, three months now, Larry, uh, as my daily driver. Yeah, and it, and yeah. it's just, it's been flawless. They've just updated it last night. Um, um, all right now I've got it installed on my test machine, which is running Majero. Uh, and then I have it uh, on my uh, main machine, which has a, a regular just uh, vanilla Ubuntu, and I um, have it installed on Ubuntu Mate on my second test machine, uh, and it all runs, you know, perfectly. So I've been very pleased with it. Yeah, and uh, I was reading as well that as recently as 
October of 2017, they Vivaldi browser added support for Chromecast as well. Oh. So I don't think there is, uh, for, for a number of years now, I don't think there's been any issue with that. Of course, Chromecast has, un, has undergone some changes too, so I can't guarantee it because I don't use the Vivaldi browser on a regular basis. But if it is based on Chrome and based on the fact that they added the support back in 2017, I think you should be all set. And yeah. on your Linux machines, give it a try. I mean, you can always uninstall it afterwards and you can run multiple browsers side by side. So uh, just try it out. Well, he has, he also mentioned that he was concerned about um, uh, if it would work like on uh, Google Drive. Well, I'm actually running it on Google Drive right this moment. Um, mm-hmm. It uh, I've actually even used it. Uh, I used web interface to Dropbox, you know, through Vivaldi, and it just it just works perfectly. I haven't had any. Um, hiccups or anything so yeah it's as far as i can tell anywhere google chrome or firefox or the new chrome based edge will work vivaldi works just as well so yep all right our next email comes from ken and he questioned us uh, on our apparent disapproval of mint on your last podcast you gave a not so veiled disapproval of mint I am a long-time user of Mint and love Cinnamon, so it is important to me. Is it because the Snap's not being supported, and why should I care about this? My main use of my computers is in the support of my ham radio hobby. I use a bit of LibreOffice, a few utilities. Ham radio programs like WSJT-X, Fiji... Uh, etc. I guess that's how you say it. Uh, Then, of course, the extensive use of Chromium to search the Internet. I don't do any games or any other fancy uh, high-intensity graphics things. I do some simple 3D CAD. Um, By the way, I do use Raspbian on my Raspberry Pi ham projects. I've looked at a number of Linux distributions, including Ubuntu, Mate, and just don't like them. I listened to you talk about distros that Bill is testing and try them from time to time, but have never found a match to uh, Mint Cinnamon. I am very concerned about the talk of ties between Canonical and Microsoft. Now this does make me queasy. If this is so or comes to pass, I would prefer to see Mint go completely away from being a Ubuntu uh, derivative, if possible. Thanks for all you do for us in the Linux world, Ken. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, I think it's not so much that we disapprove of Mint, uh, and we still recommend it for new users. We still like Mint. Um, there are some decisions that the Mint lead has made that we don't necessarily agree with, but that's uh, not necessarily a valid reason for everyone to stop using the distribution. It's it's a great distribution. They have some excellent tools. They've contributed a lot back to Linux in general. Many of their updates and upgrades have gone back into Ubuntu and by extension back into Debian. So yeah, uh, and very, very easy to use. Multiple desktops available. Uh, we like Mint a lot. Um, 
we just uh, um, are a little concerned with some of the politics behind yes. the Mint project. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Um, some people might not know that when a Mint was a new project, I was actually a user and a supporter of the project. Um, I don't agree with some of the things that they've done and some of the political views of 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 some of the developers but it's uh it's no denying it's a good um distribution for new users and not one that i choose to use anymore but i'm not saying i wouldn't recommend it to to someone that wants something that works because it does work um fine it's it's very polished i like the cinnamon desktop i mean the uh, manjaro uh, that I use has a cinnamon desktop and yes, it's uh, they have contributed quite a bit uh, without getting into a lot of detail uh, when someone wants an easy to use uh, distribution, we'd like to be able to offer multiple ones and we have said in, in the past that Mint would probably be the best for uh, uh, certain use cases and sometimes it isn't so as, you know, as we kind of see where things go uh, we will um, you know, either recommend it or we won't. But I, right now, uh, Mint seems to be a great distribution for people that just want to get things done. Yep. And the most recent questionable, in our opinion, questionable decision that the Mint team has made is the dropping of direct support for um, snaps. And that seems to be politically motivated uh, against the way that Ubuntu has been behind Snap packages and the whole Snap development efforts. And yeah, without getting into a lot of the detail that you may have already heard on other podcasts or read in Linux news sites and so on, um, that just seems a little questionable to us as well and seems politically motivated. And again, not a reason not to use Mint because there are ways around it. It's an open source software uh, stack that gives you the ability if you want to use snaps on Mint, you can do that. And there have been articles written and podcast episodes published that give you information about how to do that. So we'll not go into the details on that. But hey, it's open source software. It works great. It's well recommended for new users. And I think, Ken, that you are very safe continuing to use it. Yeah, I would agree. Just one last thought on this before we move on is, you know, uh, I'm not taking anything away from the Linux Mint developers, but they uh, use a lot of canonical um, resources to to produce their uh, Linux Mint. And so... Just, you know, the one to throw out there is, you know, they do a lot of work to polish it up, but they still use quite a bit of Canonical's uh, infrastructure to get their um, their Linux distribution out. And so, yeah, that's just kind of a afterthought. But without uh, Canonical and the work they do, uh, Linux Mint might not be where it is today. Absolutely true. Okay, moving on. Uh, Sam wrote us about password managers. 
Hello, this is Sam. Some time ago, I wrote in asking about buying a new ThinkPad. I still haven't made the purchase yet. You did respond and read my email on your show. Thank you. I wanted to know if Going Linux has talked about password managers. Samuel. Well, Sam, thanks. And yes, we have talked about password managers. I don't know whether Bill and I have talked about password managers, but I know previous co-host Tom and I talked about password managers, and that's got to be what, 10 years ago? (laughs) So maybe it's time to revisit that subject. What do you think? (laughs) Uh, Has it... Maybe maybe not 10, but it's been it's a while. Been, it's been, well, might be about eight or nine. Uh, I've been yep. co-host for, what, about six, seven now years now? Mm, like so, um, yeah, it might, time, might be time to kind of look at uh, uh, password managers. I, I, I'm feeling a show coming on here. <laughs> there we go. Okay. New topic, password managers. <laughs> Thanks for the uh, right. the uh, topic idea because that was one that uh, I had not thought about, but that's a great one. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, yeah. So our next email comes from George, who wrote, "Hey, Bill, uh, you were recommending Medro for new users. Back on Black Friday, 2018, I bought a Hades Canyon NUC, a unique machine, uh, and it has an Intel." Kirby Lake G with Vega graphics. What that means is Intel persuaded AMD to collaborate and upgrade the GPU capability of the highest end NUC. This wasn't supported on Ubuntu until 18.10 and even then only thanks to the persistence of Martin Winpress. Way to go, Wimpy. <laughs> um, okay. So I have the thing sitting on my shelf, 32 gigabyte of RAM and two NVMe SSDs, but it wouldn't work with Ubuntu or any derivative, including Mint. Uh, I installed Manjaro as a way to be on the leading edge to have a kernel and hardware stack that would run. Manjaro Cinnamon, like you installed, did that, but it became unstable after a few weeks was that because I had dabbled into the AUR because the, there were applications stock with uh, Ubuntu and Mint uh, not available in Manjaro? Just don't know. Quote, all content on the AUR is uploaded by ordinary users and very little checking of the content is done. It is up to you to verify the content is safe to use. The AUR is not an official part of Manjaro. Manjaro systems can use the AUR, but the AUR is designed for Arch, not for Manjaro. Any list a link to that. Should warn off unsophisticated users, especially uh, ones new to PCs or Linux. I have installed Manjaro a few times just to test drive. Hate the installer. I am lazy, and Ubuntu and Mint do my my work for me. Whole disk encryption is valuable, whether on a laptop more easily lost or a computer which could not be burglared. Uh, what's on my computers is far more valuable than the hardware. Not really sure I understand these options, but under assisted installation, here's what I think is the Manjaro Guide to Disk Encryption, step number nine, tiny little checkbox. 
uh, had to go looking just tonight in my past installs of a Manjaro direct to disk and and as the only OS there, the little box just flew by and my my disk wasn't encrypted. And he lists a, uh, a, another link for uh, the guide he was using. Okay. You want me to take this or you want to go first, Larry? Well, since you're the Manjaro expert, why don't you take it? I don't know an awful lot about it. <laughs> okay. So let me just address a few things. Um, and first off, I'm not a Majero expert, as you will soon find out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> You're more uh, of an expert than I am, Bill. Uh, Larry and myself were just talking about this earlier today uh, before we started the show. And I've had a, 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 a few issues with Manjaro. I've been running it uh, probably about two and a half, three months now. And I've enjoyed it. I'm still, like I said, I install, uh, have installed on one of my uh, test machines. And I don't see that going away anytime soon. But um, the AUR, they tell you right up front, you know, if you use it, it's it's all on you. So they, the AUR uh, does uh, offer a lot more software. I would not automatically say, hey, if you don't can't find it, find the AUR. I do just because I like to break things. But um, I have found that I had some of the programs I had from the AUR uh, become outdated and wouldn't work. And one of them uh, was it was a little application and and uh, that helped uh, convert some video from YouTube uh, into some something I could save on a machine and just caused a little bit of an issue. Since Majero is based on Arch, you can go in and but you have to actually go and enable the AUR. The good thing about the Arch is sometimes they are on the bleeding edge. Manjaro, not so much. They usually hold things back, I think, but they said about two weeks. So it's a little bit more stable. The only thing they don't hold back is like security uh, patches, uh, and that's right from their website. Uh, I would definitely, if you could, you know, until you're a more uh, experienced user, not uh, use a AUR. Most of the software that uh, I had installed on my main machine when it was running Manjaro was uh, straight from their repositories. And with snaps and flatbacks, you should be able to find just about everything you want. Uh, and Manjaro does support, you know, snaps and flatpaks. I found that sometimes they're they can be a little tricky to get installed, um, but for the general for for the most part it was pretty straightforward. The one thing that I've noticed about Manjaro is that you have to stay on top of the updates, or even an arch base, straight arch base. You have to stay on top of the updates. An example is uh, I was thinking about uh, just reinstalling uh, Manjaro on my main machine when I had a problem. I broke it. It wasn't Manjaro's fault. And so I pulled my uh, USB, put it in, and installed it. Everything went fine. And then the uh, ISO was too old for them to update to the current one. So I would have to have gone and, and downloaded the new version to get it to work. Because I, I was telling Larry, I, I've had about four gigs of updates you know, over the two and a half, three months. So you, you definitely got to stay on top of that. 
As far as your the installer, I agree with you. The Manjaro uh, installer is not as user friendly as um, Ubuntu or Ubuntu Mate or Mint. Uh, just just isn't. Uh, I don't I don't like it as much. I can use it and it's not a big problem, but I prefer the the uh, Ubiquity installer that Ubuntu uses. So yeah, you made some great points. Um, I do. I don't. I wouldn't say I hate the installer, but you're right. Uh, Ubuntu and Mint and uh, you know and their derivatives, they just works uh, a lot easier. As far as the the whole disk encryption, I know what you're talking about. There's a little tiny little box, and it's real easy to miss. I don't think it's even really highlighted, Larry. You actually have to be looking for it. So. Uh, all in all, if you have just a base system that you uh, want to use a non-Ubuntu-based lin uh, Linux, uh, that you're not going to be doing a lot of crazy things and you don't mind you know, making sure that you stay up on your updates, Manjaro is excellent. I have no, I have no hard feelings. But if for uh, it, you can't do like what you can with Ubuntu, as I found out, and if I'm wrong, you can yell at me. But uh, I. I pulled my Ubuntu 2004 and installed it. It updated to the current version, and it worked perfectly. But I could not do it because I oh, with Manjaro because the image was a little older than um, than it would allow to update. So that's kind of the the, the pros and cons of the you know the, kind of the uh, long term uh, support releases and the rolling. What do you think, Larry? Yeah. Yeah, so as far as um, installing software from the AUR is concerned, uh, whenever you see warnings like this, you've got to take them seriously about, you know, <laughs> use this at your own risk sort of thing. Uh, and if you have uh, the option of flat packs and, and snaps, then since those are designed to be cross Linux platform compatible, that might be your best choice in any case before going to the AUR as an option for Manjaro. That's not from personal experience with Manjaro, just personal experience with Linux. So uh, I would say that is wise advice. Uh, and let's see, for... Uh, that the disk encryption, yeah. Uh, it turns out George in his email included a screenshot of that tiny little box in step number nine about <laughs> uh, encrypting your disk on installation. Yeah, it is tiny and it is in a place it's very easy to miss. So if you missed it and you intended to encrypt your disk before installing or while installing, you're probably going to have to go back and reinstall and make sure you check that box in the process. So yeah, uh, just make sure you don't forget your encryption keys if you have to uh, restore from backup or something like that. Save them somewhere else. Uh, although you may not be an expert uh, in Manjaro, Bill, you're certainly more experienced than I am. So uh, take what Bill says over what I say. Manjuro is still um, very fond of it, uh, and uh, I will continue playing with it. Uh, it's it's just nice to see how other uh, distributions work and how their thought processes are yeah. in getting things done. And 
I, would I suggest a uh, a new user a just straight arch? Absolutely not. If you want to ease yourself in uh, to uh, arch, I would definitely recommend Manjaro. It's kind of like uh, uh, it's what uh, Ubuntu did for De Debian. You know, you had Debian, and then they took Debian and made it easier to install and easier to get things done. And I kind of figured that's kind of uh, what Manjaro did for Arch. They took Arch and made it easier to use uh, for the everyday user, not for the uh, you know the elite, you know the, the the guys that can compile their own kernels and and uh, build from source. They're going to use Arch, and that's great. You know, you've got Slackware, you've got Arch, you've got Gentoo. But for a new user coming from Windows or Mac OS, um, you're just not going to um, uh, say, hey, okay, so here's the instructions to build from source, and they're just going to look at you like you've lost your mind. Uh, that's why we try to always have multiple um, options. And, you know, one of them that uh, just as a sneak preview is that when uh, elementary is coming out with their new version i'm going to look at it because i found that mac os users or os x users li uh, like that and it's easy to understand and and sometimes when people are coming they just kind of want a, something different they want something to get their stuff done but they want something that is different from what they had been using so that's why we always try to find you know Great options, and you know Ubuntu Mate does a great thing because how many desktops do they support? Uh, do they have where you can switch like four or five now, right? Oh yeah, yeah. The 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 panel layouts. Yeah, the panel layouts. Yeah, and that helps people. And well, we recommend Ubuntu uh, Mate and Ubuntu and even Linux Mint when they tell us they have a certain you know what they're trying to do. We have no. Um, what we call skin in the game. We just wanted to say, hey, here's some options for you. And so, you know, elementary kind of does that for people coming from OS X or just want something totally different. So we're not against any distributions. We just like to know how they work and, you know, can we recommend And there's a few that we were like, ah, no, you don't want to use this right now. Yeah. Not for the average computer user. And today's average computer user uses a an Apple iPhone or an Android phone, and that's their computer. Uh, and those people, and even the people, the other average desktop uh, computing operating system or laptop operating system, uh, the average user is a Windows user, and they don't know an awful lot about computers. They use them to get things done, and that's yeah. why we recommend these other specific Linuxes for people who just want to use Linux to get things done. Yeah, when we've had a, a Windows user who say, we want a, um, a Linux that looks very similar, well, we come up with two immediately. Uh, one would be Linux Mint and Ubuntu Mate uh, because you're able to uh, kind of get that workflow back for them. Um, it's all about what you want to use, but they also we just want to make it as easy as possible. And you know whether you have um, problems with Canonical, you have problems with Fedora or Linux Man or Debian. Um, we want to make sure there's enough options that we don't care what Linux you use. We just want to encourage you to use Linux. Okay, 
Our last email is from Troy. I listened to the last episode on photography. Yeah, I thought we would get Troy with this one. He's a photographer. There's some pretty good content there. I would also suggest you mention another little-known but extremely valuable application called Entangle. Some photographers, like headshot or portrait photographers, use a method of shooting called tethered shooting. They have the camera connected to a laptop through a USB cable while they are shooting. While they are shooting, the photos automatically upload from the camera to the computer, where they automatically appear on the screen or an external display for the photographer and client to view as they progress through the shoot. And Tangle makes this happen. That's cool. Yeah, that's a great, great um, inclusion for part two of our uh, editing and managing photos on Linux series, which I think is coming up as our next episode, isn't it? It is. I just have to finish writing it. (laughs) There you go. Well, here's one more to include. Thanks, Larry. Uh, Like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but this is a good one. We would have missed this one, I think. Wouldn't yeah, we? I didn't even know about Entangle. So yeah, I'll have to uh, find it. Hey, uh, Troy, if you can tell me, is is it in? Well, I can check. But um, uh, what does Entangle do? Any other features? Oh, well, then again, I could check too. Never mind. I'm just giving myself more homework. Yeah, we'll include a link in the show notes if you're interested. And it's right there, Bill, entangle-photo.org. You can go there and find out what the features are. And it's entangle-photo that Ah, you're looking for in the application package repository. So there you go. Thanks, Troy. I I can't wait to look into that. Uh, So thanks. And thanks for not yelling at us for totally messing that whole uh, episode up because we were both in like over our heads. So thanks. I'm glad you found at least some good content. We were both talking about that after we had, we had uh, recorded going, I hope we just didn't uh, confuse people beyond (laughs) all measure. Well, I think it was, uh, and the episode was well written enough that while we were reading it, as long as we didn't, make mistakes on reading uh it made it sound like we were half intelligent about photography which is a little misleading like i said in the episode but that's okay <laughs> we <laughs> we'll can get the information it. out there either way exactly you know good research and good writing that that helps a lot so our next episode is part two of edit and manage photos on linux and uh, we're looking forward to that Until then, you can go to our website at goinglinks.com for articles and show notes, as well as links to download and subscribe. We are the website for computer users who just want to use Linux to get things done. And if you'd like, you can participate directly with our friendly and helpful community members by joining the discussion in our Going Linux podcast community on community.goinglinks.com. Until next time, thanks for listening. 73. music provided by Mark Blasco at podcastthemes.com.